The Daily Rios Digest, September 5th, 2021. Monday Musings This is a story of boy meets girl. The boy, Tom Hansen of Margate, New Jersey, grew up believing that he'd never truly be happy until the day he met the one. This belief stemmed from early exposure to sad British pop music and a total misreading of the movie The Graduate. The girl, Summer Finn of Shinnecock, Michigan, did not share this belief. Since the disintegration of her parents' marriage, she'd only loved two things. The first was her long, dark hair. The second was how easily she could cut it off and feel nothing. Tom meets Summer on January 8th. He knows almost immediately she's who he's been searching for. This is a story of boy meets girl. But you should know up front, this is not a love story. New Comics Tuesday? I'm sure most of you know that DC releases their books on a Tuesday now, so when I make recommendations for New Comics Wednesday, I just usually bundle the DC Comics recommendations into that segment. But out this week of uh, August 31st, which is when the DC books are released, we have Aquaman, the 80th anniversary 100-page spectacular. And I thought, you know what, this might actually be a fun segment to kind of go through my particular Aquaman reading by taking a look at this uh, anniversary issue. Not the issue itself, I should say, the, the covers. So we've had other spectaculars, other 80th anniversary 100-page spectaculars with Robin, Catwoman, Joker, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and we are soon to get a Wonder Woman. Now, the main cover for the Aquaman uh, anniversary is by Yvonne Yvonne Hayes and Joe Prado and Alex Sinclair. Uh, They were the artists for most of the early New 52 Aquaman run with Jeff Johns. But let us take a look at all of the other covers and some thoughts that I have uh, concerning all of these different eras. So what DC does is they compile a whole bunch of artists, usually having some kind of connection to the character, usually, not always, and they give them an era to draw, and then that artist will draw the character, you know, because the costume looks the same, or the title logo looks the same as that particular era, etc., etc. So we have Michael Cho doing the 1940s, 
And Michael Cho is an artist who has done a lot of covers for collections of characters or teams that are in DC's Silver Age line, a few Golden Age covers, and he really just hones in on the spirit of those characters for those particular eras. In this case, I get a real strong Paul Norris vibe, um, although I wish they would have colored the gloves yellow, which is how Aquaman looked in those early Golden Age stories. Now, I have not read... I don't even know if I've read any Aquaman Golden Age story. I don't remember if I read his first appearance. Um, but I do remember the Golden Age Aquaman showing up randomly in All-Star Squadron. Now, was he in just sort of like a flashback or a cameo? Did he actually show up on the page? I can't remember. It's been a while since I've read All-Star Squadron. I think I stopped around issues... I don't know, somewhere in the 30s or 40s. I do want to go back to it. I was reading All-Star Squadron and I was reading Infinity Inc. There's a new All-Star Squadron podcast called A World on Fire, you know, um, and they're doing issue by issue breakdown sometimes. I think now they're starting to do like two or three issues an episode. So that's really ultimately where I think I first was introduced to the Golden Age Aquaman or to the concept that all of those Golden Age stories were then shunted over to Earth-2, pre-crisis, the Earth-2 Aquaman. We then get the 1950s cover, and this is by Ramona Fraden and Sandra Hope and Trish Mulvihill. Uh, almost reminds me of something that you might see when DC used to do the DC Showcase black and white collections. Um, Ramona apparently had an extensive run, on the Silver Age. I doubt, again, that I read very much of this era, if at all, um, but obviously a, uh, an artist that was connected to the character and was able to uh, do one of the covers, which is great. For the 1960s, we have Walt Simonson and Laura Martin, and this is Aquaman fighting a robotic octopus. Now, I looked on Walt Simonson's Instagram and he lists this as uh, a 10 by 15 drawing done in brush pen and India ink. And Walt writes, Aquaman fighting a robot octopus seemed appropriate for a cover inspired by the Aquaman adventures of the 1960s. And a tip of the hat to my friend, John Paul Leon. Love you, pal. John Paul Leon uh, just passed away uh, in the past couple months. Again, another era, I don't believe I've read many of these. And if I have, it's probably because it was an Aqualad, Aqualad story, which Ramona Freyden uh, co-created along with Robert Bernstein. Um, although I have seen all of the Aquaman cartoons from 67 through 68 in my great journey through all of DC's animated properties. Um, and I quite enjoyed those cartoons. I was watching the Aquaman cartoons, and I believe I was watching the Superman cartoons at the time, and I think I much preferred the Aquaman ones, oddly enough. We go to the 1970s. This cover is by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, yay, and Trish Mulvihill. This is Aquaman along with Mira, and I, I guess for this era, I really think about the uh, Aquaman uh, comics in Adventure, or the Aquaman stories in Adventure Comics. I did have 
the death of a prince trade and then sold it but didn't read it which was dumb now of course you get aquaman in the super friends cartoons during this time which is probably really what's kind of ingrained in my mind when i think back as a kid you know how did i know of aquaman aquaman in the cartoon with the blonde hair the black eyes the the telepathic ring sound um that distinctive voice so for the 70s that's that's kind of where my mind goes it's interesting that there aren't a lot of aquaman collections i mean they have aquaman maybe in the silver age the golden age the death of the uh, death of a prince as i mentioned but you know for the longest time there was no i mean there's no like you know aquaman man of man of steel version or dark knight returns version for aquaman it's not there's not a lot of that so uh, again another decade not really familiar with so then we get to the 80s this covers by chuck patton and kevin nolan and alex sinclair and this is aquaman fighting black manta and ocean master all right so now you're getting into the aquaman that i know particularly in the justice league of america volume that eventually turned into the team based out of detroit which aquaman was uh pretty much the leader of for a while and that's the era that gave aquaman that kind of gruff uh persona um he was having troubles with his wife mira in fact, he left the team because he was going to go and search for her. But it really kind of brought to the front just how powerful a character he could be. Instead of just being, you know, another Justice League member, he was a leader. And he made a lot of mistakes, but he also was very, uh, very powerful. The The image that comes to my mind as drawn by Chuck Patton is um, they're fighting a character that has a crowbar, a magic crowbar. They toss it toward the Justice League. Aquaman just grabs it right out of thin air and th uh, right out of the air and then throws it back. And I used to always just think how cool that was. So what else do I like about Aquaman in the 80s? We have that four-issue miniseries that introduced the camouflage costume, which I love. Um, we have a couple other miniseries that I didn't read and a special. Uh, apparently there was one by Keith Giffen and Fleming and drawn by Swan and Alvey. And I was like, oh... I didn't know. I don't, I don't think I knew that Giffen wrote those stories, uh, although I think a listener might have mentioned them too somewhere along the way. So I have to read those. Now, I did read about seven issues of a run that was by Sean McLaughlin and drawn by Ken Hooper, mostly. I think I read about seven. There was, I don't know, somewhere like 13, 14 of those issues. And those early covers were by Kevin McGuire. Picked them up. I'm not even certain if it had anything to do with the four-issue miniseries that predated it, the Keith Giffen miniseries, or anything that Peter David was eventually going to do. Um, there was a character that showed up in there that had the old camouflage costume. I think it was Thanatos was the name of the character. So there's a, a series that I did read a little bit of. but So, so the 80s is kind of where I get involved with, uh, with Aquaman. We have the 90s cover, as drawn by Yval Goucher and Nick Filardi. This is an era of Aquaman that I read probably the most of. We have everything from the Atlantis Chronicles by Peter David and Esteban Moroto on the art, gorgeous art. And then Peter David's Aquaman run, which I read 
a ton of, if not all of, and then eventually it went into Eric Larson, which I ran a little bit of. Aquaman was in Grant Morrison's JLA. He was a pretty interesting character in Mark Wade and Barry Kitson's JLA Year One. So all of this, this is like a well-read um, decade in, in terms of Aquaman reading. And I also really like the cover. I, I love the coloring. I like the highlights. It's kind of interesting that they didn't wait to put Goucher on uh, the 2000s because that he was the art or they were the artist uh, on the Rick Veach run in the 2000s. So, um, well, I might as well go to it. So then in the 2000s, the cover is by Becky Cloonan. So it's like, okay, I'm not sure why they didn't wait or switch or whatever. So it's Becky Cloonan on the cover. The logo matches when the Rick Veach volume of Aquaman turned into the Sub Diego storyline. So that's what that title logo is kind of referencing. I didn't really read the Rick Veach stuff. You know, that was when he was kind of like really dealing with like the water elemental stuff and he had that water hand. Um, and I can't remember when when all the stuff was going on with like Aquaman and the Obsidian Age in JLA. I don't know if that's like late 90s or early 2000s. But anyway, I did read the Sub Diego stuff. Had really great Alan Davis covers. Uh, it was written by Will Pfeiffer and art by Patrick Gleason and Christian Alame. Very interesting story. Right around the time of all of that buildup that was going on towards Infinite Crisis. And I just remember, I don't know, reading about it or someone talking about how good Aquaman was. And I picked up some of those early Sub Diego issues at Midtown Comics in New York. I can kind of remember seeing the covers on the shelf there. Eventually that volume was uh, would be turned over to Kurt Busick and Jackson Geis. Uh, it was renamed Aquaman Sword of Atlantis. This is after Infinite Crisis during one year later in 2006. It was not the Aquaman, well it was Aquaman but it wasn't the Aquaman that we knew. If I'm remembering right I believe he was another character in that volume called The Dweller and somehow they you know, because things were going on. Aquaman had been killed, possibly, and then somewhere along the way we got an Aquaman in Final Crisis, but it wasn't the real Aquaman, and then we have this Aquaman. So all that stuff is, I mean, I read a lot of it. I just don't remember it. But we would get our Aquaman back in Blackest Night. And then uh, he played a, a role in that whole Brightest Day title. Leading us to the 2010s, this cover by the recently passed Robson Rocha, uh, who died of uh, COVID complications. So uh, this was by Robson and Daniel Enriquez and Romulo Fajardo Jr. 2010's title logo is uh, reminiscent of the New 52 logo and the Rebirth logo, which Robson Rocha was a part of. Um, I can remember when the New 52 Aquaman hit, and I even looked this up. Uh, around the fifth month of DC, they had taken the entire top 10 spots in the top 300 list. And on that list was Aquaman number five. And everybody made a big deal in articles about how every, how Aquaman number five beat every Marvel title that month. So, I mean, it was written by Jeff Johns and Yvonne Hayes. Uh, so they were trying to give him a boost. 
And you have to imagine a lot of that was because they had plans for Aquaman for, I don't know, for, was it that early? Was was 2011 too early for Zack Snyder to already start to be thinking about Batman versus Superman and um, showing up, showing Aquaman in that? I don't know. I don't know if that's too early or not. I mean, Man of Steel was 2013, Batman versus Superman was, Batman versus Superman was 2016, so... It might have been too early, but what they probably were thinking is, let's get this character onto a journey where he can become popular, just like we did with Green Lantern, because we could potentially have a movie with this character. So they could be, they could have been thinking that. Again, it's not a decade I'm very familiar with, um, but it's certainly the decade that probably has the most collections for Aquaman, so that if you're looking to read Aquaman, current stuff... I have to imagine they have a lot of trades from this decade. So lots of Aquaman reading left to be done. Uh, let me know what cover you picked up, if you did at all. Uh, let me know what your Aquaman history is like. Uh, not one of my favorite characters, but certainly a character that... I think when these... Uh, the whole Peter David stuff was really just so good, and I love Atlantis Chronicles and... Uh, it would be interesting to see if they carried over any of that into the New 52, as I'm reading the New 52, right? So I guess pretty soon I'm going to be reading Jeff Johns and Ivan Hayes on Aquaman, and I'll get to see what all the craziness was about. So happy 80th anniversary to Aquaman. <laughs> New Comics Wednesday. Okay, here are my recommendations for the comics uh, for the week of September 1st. Starting with Marvel, we have Dark Ages 1 of 6 by Tom Taylor and Ivan Coelho. This is what the Watcher has been waiting for. A danger older than the Earth threatens everything. For once, the heroes who have saved the planet so many times are almost powerless in the face of it. X-Men and, and Avengers assemble, Spider-People and Fantastic Four come together, heroes for hire fight alongside champions. None of it will be enough. The lights are about to go out, the world outside our window is about to end, an all-new saga of the Marvel Universe have, as you've never seen it before. And this is $4.99. I get a real, I don't know, uh, final night vibe to it, but I don't know if that's it. I don't know. I'm not sure what it's about. I haven't really seen a preview or a trailer, so some of you probably have already read it and, and you know, you're like, nope, it's not that at all. But um, it's an event and it's Tom Taylor messing around in the uh, Marvel Universe, so I thought, okay, I might give that a, a look. From Fair Square, we have Noir is the New Black. Noir stories from black creators. The music intro uh, for this segment is from their Kickstarter. So we have creators such as David Walker, Brandon Thomas, Melody Cooper, Brandon Easton, and Stephen Harris, M.D. Bright, Karen Dorbo, Walt Barna, David Brame, uh, and so many more. And it's 40 black creators delivering 16 noir stories in a unique way. 
for the, uh, some for the first time and some who are established comic book creators. I flipped through some of the preview pages and I thought, yeah, this is, this is cool. This is great. This is, uh, you know, a bunch of creators coming together to tell, uh, you know, themed stories, I guess you could say. And this is for $25 from Aftershock, Almost American number 1 by Ron Mars, Marco Castiello, Russ Wooten, Spies Like Us. In 2008, husband and wife Russian intelligence operatives walked into the U.S. Embassy in the Dominican Republic in order to defect, making a deal to trade secrets for new lives. But instead of the American dream... The Newmans found themselves caught up in red tape, bureaucracy, and turf wars between the FBI and CIA, all while their past tries to kill them, based on the real-life story of real-life spies. Uh, Almost American was written by Ron Mars in close consultation with the Newmans, and this is for $4.99. And then back issue 130 from Tomorrow's Publishing. Always love when a new back issue comes out. And this is all about Bronze Age promos, ads, and gimmicks. Such as, who was the writer behind those Hostess comic ads? DC's 16-page previews, which I loved. The DC Hotline, Marvel's little-known quarterly reports, featuring creators such as Mike W. Barr, Paul Kupperberg, Paul Levitz, Kevin McGuire, Mark Pasella, Jimmy Palmiotti, Scott Shaw, Roy Thomas, and so many more, including a previously unpublished 1979 five-star superhero spectacular cover by Dick Dillon and uh, Dick Giordano. And this is for $9.95. I do not use back issue enough. It is such a resource. And I definitely want to try to um, get into those volumes and and see what I'm missing. And if I have like a particular topic coming up, I should always check to see if there was a back issue article written about it because then I could learn some backstory to it. So there you go. My recommendations for this week. Yeah, we're doing okay right now. Um, we are on the 22nd off-ramp of the Vine Street Expressway, you know, one of the main arteries in and out of the city, but no one is getting through here. It is completely submerged. If you take a closer look between the height of the water level and under the bridge, you could see it's really only about three or so feet uh, between them, um, you know, and this is an area where uh, tractor trailers get through all the time here um, uh, by 22nd Street in Center City, and this is is happening as the city's famed Made in America festival is just days away. So it's going to be uh, d- definitely a lot of traffic trouble. For, uh... Oh, you know, just me rolling into Philadelphia on Thursday to work. Uh, you know, I drive but then take the train. And, uh, you know, I have a 10 o'clock class, so I get there pretty early. And then I leave somewhere around like 4.30, 5 o'clock. And it isn't until I'm on the train back out of the city that I realized 676 is now a canal. I mean, what the... (laughs) Look, nothing compared to the destruction left by Ida in the South, I get that. But this is certainly eye-opening to have this major highway in Philadelphia submerged, completely submerged. 
you have people who lived in Philadelphia 40, 50 years, never, they've never seen anything like that. And I'm so oblivious that I'm on the train that I don't even look out the window to see the Schuylkill because we cross right over the Schuylkill. I could have maybe walked walked to Vine Street. I could have walked and seen this can, this new canal for myself and because it actually was a beautiful day on Thursday. Um, uh, didn't even know. Didn't even know. I'm, I, I'm so mad at myself uh, that I didn't see that this was happening. And I think there are people like kayaking in it. Gross. Who knows what that water has. So I did see a theory, though. I thought this was kind of an interesting theory that the way 676 is constructed because it, it has that depth. There's some people saying that it's probably a good thing that it's like that because all of that water, if that if that road was level with the rest of the city, all of that water would have gone... I assume everywhere would have gone all throughout around Vine Street, maybe close to City Hall, because um, that was a lot of water that was in that in that highway. Now, you know, did they think about that when they were constructing that highway? I don't know, but it does feel, somebody was like, it does feel kind of odd that that's exactly what happened, that it, that it kind of saved major parts of the city. Um, but, whoa, <laughs> what those images are just crazy, you know? And it made me think that as someone who has rented a lot of apartments, water has been the th my greatest enemy with like roof leaks and um, snow on, on top of rooftops, uh, upstairs neighbors having portable washer machines that overflow, um, you know, and when you're dealing with landlords that don't really care... Uh, you know, water can be a real problem. And I, I know certainly during Sandy, we had a little bit of a mess in our apartment. Um, I, I kind of joke, but I, I have nightmares about leaks and water when it comes to apartments. You know, I, I call it renter's trauma because it's something that has followed me a lot through a lot of my apartments, this idea of water being the greatest enemy. Um, which causes, you know, paint to separate from the wall. It causes the wall to become brittle. It causes mold. I mean, all of it. It really is kind of like my particular renter's trauma. If there isn't any research on renter's trauma, there really should be. There really should be. So please, people, stay safe. Climate change is real. I mean, this is just ridiculous. And, um... I was not put out in any way, like people in Louisiana who still have no power. I mean, that's just really, just crazy. So this is all crazy and um, an event, uh, you know, just an odd occurrence and an odd event um, that we're going to see more of. I keep telling my parents, you better check your insurance. Like, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, you know, here where we live, it's there's sinkholes now and all of that water has to go somewhere. And it's washing away something. So, yeah, this is a whole new place uh, for people. I mean, we're having tornadoes, major tornadoes in New Jersey and Pennsylvania that are destroying homes. And it's like, we don't get that around here. I mean, we do now, but uh, so, so weird. So please be safe. Feedback Friday. 
So this is the first digest of a new month. So I'm taking all of the, or most of the feedback that I got from the previous month and putting it into this segment. Uh, I probably got some more, and there's certainly people who have retweeted and made small comments here and there, and I appreciate each and every one. So thank you. Thank you for reaching out. Seems to be like, you know, people are excited about some of the topics, some of the recurring topics that I'm doing on the Digest, and every now and then I do something that, you know, people are like, okay, that was fun. So um, first up, Stephen Orr of the Just Another Fanboy and Event or Else podcast, currently going through Crisis on Infinite Earths. Sent in a little comment about the August 22nd Digest, talking about podcast listening habits. I have a crap ton of podcasts that I want to be listening to, but now that I'm working from home, I no longer have the time. Much of my listening was done during my commute, which no longer exists. Yeah, oddly enough, I got my commute back again now that I'm going into Philadelphia three times a week, so I'm able to listen to some podcasts, including Stephen Orr's podcast, catching up on that, uh, Geek Syndicate, they just put out a new episode recently, always listen to the Longbox Review, trying to find some new ones that I can listen to, some comic ones, some non-comic ones. Um, let me look at my podcast app. What do we have here? A World on Fire, an All-Star Squadron podcast, Comic Book Noise, although that hasn't been updated too recently, Culture Trappin', still waiting for a new episode of that, Drawing Funny, an MCSA podcast uh, by Lynn Workman. Um, I still love Gilbert Gottfried's podcast when I can listen to that. Uh, La Brega podcast, Longbox Review. Uh, Nerd Goggles just put out a new episode recently. No Fun with Jen Kirkman. Uh, let's see. I'm skipping through a whole bunch. Just because, you know, I'm, I'm just not caught up in. Oh, Boom Addiction going through there. Uh, their library, and then we have uh, X-Men Unraveled. I really enjoy that podcast. So, yeah, and, and so many more. Um, yeah, I'm just real curious what people think about, you know, podcasting these days and, and what are they looking for in podcasts and what time lengths and uh, et cetera. Chris Beckett also wrote in on the same top topic, uh, says, I listen at work, doing chores, in the car, I only worked remotely for a couple of months, so I'm not falling behind. Uh, I've eschewed listening to some of my news ones to try and stay up to date with the entertainment ones. Yeah, I don't think I could do a news podcast. There's been so much news, <laughs> especially, you know, from 2016 to 2020. There was just so much news every day that I could no longer take. I don't know if I could take listening to news on a podcast. It's kind of nice not to be able to always be glued to the TV for whatever reason or to learn about whatever shenanigans were happening, you know, in the day. So uh, Chris Beckett also wrote about the trivia segment on that same segment and said zero for six on the Alan Moore trivia, 1.5 out of six on the Spider-Man trivia. Corwin from the Earth's Mightiest Podcast podcast, talking about another podcast, wrote in to comment on my review of the new Moon Knight series and gives a nod to the 2014 series, especially the first six issues drawn by Declan Shalvey, um, mentions that the leisure suit Moon Knight in the Ellis run was mostly, if not all, single-issue stories. 
and gives a uh, writer Jed McKay a nod for the Black Cat and Taskmaster comics. Div Collins on episode 513, the Black Orchid episode. Maybe it's just a consequence of growing up in the non-proto-internet days of the 80s and 90s in a country like New Zealand with few comic shops. But I always felt like Jeanette Kahn doesn't get the plaudits due for everything she presided over, including the British invasion. Such a magical time for comics. And I just thought that was an interesting point because, yes, Karen Berger, driving Vertigo, awesome. But you did have someone like Jeanette Kahn behind everything that that has to give the okay on some level. And there's a couple of things I found. So first of all, back issue 57 has an interview with Jeanette Kahn, and it also has an article on the birth of DC's Vertigo line, so I'm going to have to read that. Ben, if you're listening, we're going to have to read that. I found a Jeanette Kahn interview on YouTube from seven years ago during the Chicago Humanities Festival, where she talked about uh, her early days as the only female publisher of a company like that at the time, um, talking about several of DC, several of the new policies that she brought in at DC. Unfortunately, the moderator of that interview was woefully not up to snuff. They confused the DC implosion uh, for crisis, and they mixed up Vertigo and Milestone along with some other mistakes. It was kind of painful to watch. And I think it caused Jeanette to just kind of give quick answers instead of really going in-depth. But um, yeah, Jeanette Kahn was 28 years old in 1976 when she became publisher of DC Comics. Uh, She was the youngest person in the company to become president of a division and the first woman. And in her new position, she would try new formats because she came from magazines. Uh, She would have several new lines that she would initiate. Of course, as uh, Div mentions, the whole British invasion And it even says in her wiki that she was instrumental in dissuading the head of Warner Publishing from simply ending the publishing line in favor of simple license maintenance. And she was one that kept it uh, a going concern. Wow. All to say, yep, I would love to do a deeper dive on Jeanette Kahn. So I'm going to have to do that. I think somewhere along the line, in one of the comics I read in the 70s, uh, she wrote an editorial in DC about, you know, her, her becoming the new publisher. And, um, uh, I just don't remember what she said in it. And as I mentioned, yeah, anybody else who's written in, if you've commented on the website, I do respond. I don't know if you get notifications, but I do try to respond to every comment on the website. So please send me email, peter at the By the way, you can hear me on a couple other podcasts, DC All-Star 71 which is a trip back to the 90s, as Daryl and I talk about uh, the good stuff that happened in the 90s. So Daryl covers two issues of Wonder Woman, and I talk about the Ray miniseries uh, with art by Joe Quesada. And then CGS 1821, Brian and I are back, and we have completed in that episode the Walt Simonson Surtur Saga from Thor issues 348 to 353. Basically, we said what we didn't finish the footnotes issue by issue on the Walt Simonson run, and we definitely wanted to go at least to the end of the Surtur Saga. So Brian and I, it's a casual conversation. It's not a footnotes conversation, and there are plenty of geeky tangents along the way. 
So it's not only about Thor, it's about a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, we're just doing these, you know, kind of casual comic talk episodes, and they are a lot of fun. So please check that out, CGS 1821. Also, happy fourth anniversary to the Legion Project podcast that I'm doing with Eric. September 4th, Saturday, September 4th, is the fourth anniversary, the actual anniversary. We are up to issue, well, we're up to issue 32. We're up to the Universo Project. Before we get there, though, we're going to cover the Cosmic Boy miniseries, and all of this takes us halfway through the Baxter run of the Legion of Superheroes. Always having a great time on that podcast. If you haven't listened to it, uh, I think you really should. Uh, we just have some, I just think it's, a, we just have great conversations. And yes, those episodes are long, but we are deep diving into Legion lore and other tangents and other comics in the in DC Comics of the 80s that might feature the Legion, like Who's Who, Secret Origins, Crisis, Legends, etc. I'm having a lot of fun, so please come join us on the Legion Project. All right, that's it. Follow me on Twitter. Leave a comment on the website. Go follow me on Instagram, etc., etc., etc. Seriously, just thank you for all the support, and uh, I'm going to keep it going. This has been the Daily Rios episode 519, the ninth digest for Sunday, September 5th, 2021. Talk to you soon. Now I remember. I hate freaking John Delancey. He's an asshole. Really? Oh, yes, I do. And I don't care if he ever comes on the show. When you go to a Star Trek convention and you look down your nose at television, then fuck you, because if it wasn't for television, you wouldn't have the money to do your hoity-toity plays. So kiss my ass, John Delancey. And send your letters, too. Oh, no, I don't get I'll, I'll take them. I'll take them out. Kick them right in the nards. <laughs> it's on the list. But on he's, the list. He's, 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 he's on, on the list. list. He's oh, he's on, on the list. list. <laughs> and that list includes... <laughs> Joe Casada. <laughs> Watch out if I get to see you in New York, San Diego. Your nards are mine, John Delancey. I better never see you walking down the street. I will pull a Lord Shaper on your ass and I'll take you out. <laughs> the list is growing, boys and girls, every day in every way.